Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Before we begin, I just want to alert you all that I will be giving a public Science of Star Trek talk on June 16th as part of the Carnegie Earth and Planets Laboratories Neighborhood Lecture Series. This is a virtual talk, and registration is free. Just follow the link in the show notes. I plan on giving a very similar talk to the one that I gave at Star Trek Mission Chicago, so if you missed that one, please tune in this time. And even if you did see my Mission Chicago talk, you'll still want to be there, because after I'm done speaking, I'll be hosting a Q&A panel with other Trekkie scientists at Carnegie. So, you don't want to miss it. Again, the link to register is in the show notes. So, one of my favorite things about going to Star Trek conventions is the chance to meet really cool new people. Last month at Star Trek Mission Chicago, I met Dr. Anastasia Klimchinskaya, a scholar of literature, specifically science fiction. That's right, she studies the science fiction that people made historically and use it to examine the meaning-making of the time, the changing ways in which people were understanding their place in the world. Our little chat completely changed the way I viewed science fiction, and so I knew that I had to invite her aboard Strange New Worlds for a full interview about her work so that she can blow your mind too. We recorded this interview just after Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the TV show, premiered, so fair warning for all of those worried about spoilers, we'll also be discussing that first episode of the latest Star Trek series towards the end of the interview. All right, I think that's all you need to know before we go out and meet Anastasia. Dr. Anastasia Klimchinskaya, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's so good to see you again over Zoom. We met in person at Star Trek Mission Chicago, and you told me all about your research over a massively overpriced coffee, but I think it was so worth it because I got to discover that you are a super cool person who does incredibly mind-blowing work, at least mind-blowing oh, to me. thank you. <laughs> so before we get to all of that amazing academic stuff, though, uh, let's first recap the convention. How did you enjoy Star Trek Mission Chicago? What was your favorite part of the convention? I loved it. Although, you know, I can't believe it was, I think, about a month ago. It feels like a decade. My life has just been so packed. But I think it was amazing. One of the things I really love about conventions is all of that energy of just hundreds or thousands of people in the same place who all love the same thing and get the same references and the same in jokes. And you're just sort of, even if you don't know anybody, you have this amazing energy and you're connected by this passion and it's all in one place. And I love that. And I also feel like it's almost come full circle because the Strange New Worlds cast was there. We got to see the very first 
bridge scene from the show. And now, of course, Strange New Worlds just aired. Sorry for interrupting, but I have to say, you got to see that, but I didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> whose fault was... was that for, for not coming to that panel? <laughs> it was the uh, organizer's fault for scheduling my panel <laughs> at the exact same time as the Star Trek Strange New Worlds panel, which oh, I was man. just heartbroken about. <laughs> well, oh, you goodness. know, these, these same convention organizers, when they did the New York convention, they scheduled me at the same time as William Shatner. And I was kind of like, well, nobody's, nobody's going to come to my panel. They're all going to go see James T. Kirk. But I actually had a great crowd, surprisingly. (laughs) Me too. I was so surprised that the room was, well, it wasn't packed full, but it was like more than half full. And that Mm -hmm. was like a more than half full room more than I thought. (laughs) I thought there would be nobody like who would come to this thing. Uh, But apparently some people thought that astrobiology was more interesting than the uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds cast panel, which I still cannot fathom why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, Trekkies are nerds. True, true. Yeah, so sorry, I interrupted you there. Uh, keep going. Tell me more about uh, your convention experience. Well, I mean, I think this is the second convention I've been to since the whole pandemic happened. The first was C2E2, um, and definitely the first Trek convention that I've been to since, you know, the world imploded uh, and is still kind of imploding a little bit. So, you know, during the pandemic, I missed conventions so much. I missed being in the same room with all of these people who love the same thing I did, um, you know, getting to learn about how it was made and, and the thought that goes into the stories and just getting really passionate about it. So I was just so thrilled that so many fans were willing to come out. I was so thrilled that so many of the cast were willing to come out and meet people and hug people and do photo ops and and see us in person because you know there there is still a pandemic going on but they they were willing to be there they were willing to connect with us and share with us and and just contribute all that wonderful energy yeah completely agree Let's turn to your work now. So you work at U Chicago's Institute for the Formation of Knowledge. What a cool mm-hmm. name. This is a highly interdisciplinary organization that seeks to understand how factors like history, politics, culture, religion, and science shape what we know or what we think we know about the world. I think that this is such an important line of research, Anastasia, especially in an age of fake news and this general distrust of experts and expertise and evidence-based reasoning. How does work at the Institute for the Foundation of Knowledge further our understanding of, quote unquote, the truth? Yeah, thank you for putting it in quotations because I'm going to do a very you Chicago thing and say, you know, when you say our understanding of the truth, who do you mean by our? And then I'm going to ask you to specify what you mean by the truth, um, which is all to say that I think I'm a lot less interested in, you know, what the truth is, quote unquote, and more interested in the lenses through which we perceive the world, what we think we know, how we've come to understand it, how we've come to accept particular worldviews or methodologies as ways of producing truth. And in particular, because of my background in literature, I'm especially interested in the way that our narratives create the lenses through which we make sense of the world, through which we understand the unfamiliar. So for example, there's this term from psychology and that 
psychologists of fiction, which is kind of a subdiscipline of literature, use. Um, and the term is schema, which is essentially just kind of mental categories, like sort of boxes in your brain is a very simple way to think of it. And when we encounter something unfamiliar, we have to assimilate it to those schemas. So we have to put it in kind of one of those mental categories. And often it's literature and fiction that provides those mental categories. So the books we've read, the shows we've watched, the family histories that have been passed down to us, the histories and, and legends and stories we've been taught in school and so on. And so we take all of that. And then when we encounter things that we don't know in the world, we, we think what kind of story or, or what category best kind of fits this thing so I can make sense of it. That really makes sense to me. I just, as an astrobiologist, wrote a perspective paper uh, about how astrobiologists need to be very explicit about their schema for life, because not everybody has the same schema for life. So at the very beginning of your discussion or your paper or your publication, you should tell people, you should tell your reader what your schema is for life. Uh, and it's also important for trying to look for life, right? If you divide the universe into things that are alive and things that are not alive, that sort of influences the things that you kind of, you look for, the things that you value in as an astrobiologist looking for biosignatures. So what you're talking about really makes sense to me. It resonates with, with my science as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's this episode of TNG from the very early in the first season where they discover some phenomenon and they're trying to define is it life or isn't it life well what are all of the attributes of life well according to all of these attributes we're going to list this phenomena that we've just encountered does qualify as life so I, I recall Star Trek also doing some of that same thinking yeah for sure well, you don't study life, you study literature. So you have a PhD in comparative literature and your research focuses on the emergence of science fiction. <laughs> it's just so cool to me what you study. I mean, I'm a person who hangs around scientists mostly. So I have to say, I've never actually met a person with your particular background or academic interests. And I certainly have never had anyone like you on this podcast before. So could you tell me a little bit about your academic history? How did you decide that you wanted to study literature? How did you decide that science fiction was the thing that you wanted to study? Absolutely. So I think there's two questions there, how I decided on literature and then how I decided on science fiction. So to start with literature, it's a very simple story in that when I was 13 years old, I read a book and that book was called The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. And I just absolutely fell in love. I've realized that literature could do so much more than just tell stories that entertain us and distract us. Although that of course is also valuable. Stories can really grasp something about the essence of what it means to be human. And I decided I wanted to study literature, primarily French literature, so that I could work on Alexandre Dumas and his other novels. And then growing up, I also had a very strong background in science. Um, my father has a PhD in physics, and he's a software engineer who always pushed me to study the sciences. And I had always sort of really loved the sciences, especially physics. I'd kind of 
always looked up at the stars when I was a teenager and, and I was thinking about, you know, how many light years it would take for the light to reach us. So if we were looking through a really powerful telescope, what we'd be looking at is things that happened, you know, millions of years ago because of the time it takes life to travel. So I was always in love with literature, but also always really interested in that scientific perspective. And that led me to think quite a bit about what are the differences between literature and science as ways of looking at the world, as ways of knowing about the world. They both require imagination and creativity. So what is it that makes them different? Why do we sort of put them in different categories and say the arts and the sciences or the arts and the humanities? And then I think that naturally pushed me towards science fiction as this literary genre that is so intimately linked to science and technology where you can't separate them. You can't put them in different categories. They're, they're married or they're intertwined. So I, I got very interested in that. And then I actually only started watching Star Trek and Stargate in my late teens, early 20s. And I think that made me really fall in love with science fiction itself and understand what it can do and, and how it works and all, you know, all of the possibilities that it brings to life. Awesome. That's so cool how Star Trek has inspired your pursuits, which are completely different from mine. And yet we're also inspired by Star Trek. Star Trek can just inspire people to do all sorts of amazing things. And this is one great example of it. So you are currently writing a book called, or tentatively called, Science Fiction and the Birth of Modernity, which investigates the emergence of science fiction in the industrial age. To be honest, I spend very little time thinking about the industrial age. So could you please set the scene for me? What was it like to live back then? And why did this environment provide the backdrop for the emergence of a genre called science fiction? So it's funny because I don't think many people who aren't academics spend very much time thinking all that hard about the industrial age, by which I mean sort of the 19th century, essentially, kind of the hundred or so years after industrialization began in Europe in the late 18th century. And I think it's incredibly deceptive because in a lot of ways, it's so similar to our own moment it produced a lot of ways of thinking and being that are still you know, very central to our existence in the present. And obviously when I say our, I'm talking to kind of the Western world. So the, the countries and, and the national literatures and the ideas that I work on, which primarily are focused on Europe and America. And that's also been you know, my experience of where I've lived and where I've grown up. And so my argument is that science fiction emerged in this period to express and interrogate all of these new ways of being produced by industrialization. And I think the, the most kind of salient point there is that the transformation has to do with the scale at which new technologies entered and transformed everyday life in unprecedented ways. So you had factories, you had urbanization, you had the advent of electric illumination, which really meant that instead of functioning according to this organic cycle of night versus day, where you did your work during daylight and then you went to sleep at night, you could have 24-hour factories. You could kind of rely on human timekeeping rather than natural world to set your schedule. You had instantaneous communication with the telegraph 
And so there was really that sense that with new technologies, we are really transforming and dominating the natural world uh, and the environment by which we're surrounded, that we're discovering and mapping kind of every inch of quote unquote unknown territory, although of course, many of these were territories inhabited by various peoples. And so I think that that kind of mindset of technologies make so many new things possible that were previously impossible, the sense of we can dominate the natural world and the environment around us. I think that still really inflects and inspires our thinking. You know, we still think so much in terms of discovery and conquest of unknown frontiers. You know, we're trying to supposedly colonize Mars. We took first steps onto the moon and now we want to go back to the moon. We want to constantly break our speed records and go faster and faster. We're constantly transforming our natural lived environment in all of these different ways. So that sense of domination and conquest over the natural world, I think, is is still so very central for us. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. This rapid increase in innovation, technologically speaking, urbanization, it all seems to be fueled by the energy transformation of the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, you know, I'm not a historian of science, but I think there was a lot of foundational thermodynamics that was being discovered around that time. What were some of the major scientific discoveries of the 19th century that reshaped our view of the world? Yeah, so I'm glad you bring up the thermodynamics because the second law of thermodynamics, which you know states that the universe tends towards entropy very simply, was articulated most notably in the 1850s. And so there was that, that realization that instead of this kind of teleological end where we're moving towards something meaningful, which is what many religious narratives had provided prior to the 19th century, it kind of removed that teleology and just said, you know, the universe is running out of energy and there's nothing we can do about it. And this happened alongside many other similar discoveries in paleontology, geology, evolutionary science. And these suggested a few things. Firstly, that the planet is much older than 6,000 years old, which many previous religious narratives had suggested. And also that you know, there had been other species that existed previous to us. There might be other species that will exist after us. We as human beings are the product of chance. We're the product of all of these lengthy processes of evolution over which we essentially have no control. And so this resulted in a kind of a decentering of the human, a realization of our own insignificance that there's nothing saying that we have to be around. We haven't always been around. We might not always be around. A comet might come and wipe us out like, like it wiped out the dinosaurs. And, and there's nothing we can do because there's nothing that makes us any more important than any other species that has ever lived on this planet or any other. And, you know, if, if you think about how many previous worldviews were based on the idea that humanity is special, that we're kind of at the top of the great chain of living beings that, that we are divinely created and, and therefore sort of not like any other species, that complete decentering of ourselves, that, that placement of ourselves alongside just any other species is not that much more important. That was just 
a complete conceptual and paradigmatic shift that I think to this day we have so much trouble accepting, even though you know we have things like SETI, where we're looking for planets with other life, where we, for the most part, most of us anyway, recognize that the planet is, you know, billions of years old and, and the dinosaurs were around before us and, and all of these things. But we still like to think ourselves as the center of the universe, metaphorically speaking. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of that TNG episode, First Contact. So not the movie, but, but the episode where they discover these aliens who are very reluctant to accept that there's other species out in the universe because they've always thought of themselves as like the center of the world. And in a certain part of the episode, you realize, well, actually these aliens are a metaphor for ourselves as human beings, because we like to think that we're metaphorically speaking, the center of the world, we're the most important. And, and because that idea is being kind of placed onto an alien species, we can really see it for what it is that we center humanity in ways that are even in contrast with what we know about scientific history, about planetary history, about geological history, and so on. Yeah. So it sounds like the 19th century was a time of great contradiction, in a sense, mm -hmm. that science and technology gave us two different kinds of takes on our place in the universe. On the one hand, science in its theories of evolution and its theories of thermodynamics and entropy, like you said, decentered the human from a place of importance, whereas technology was granting us the great capability of impacting the natural world and reshaping it to whatever we felt like it should be. How did this contradiction shape the foundation of science fiction? I really think that it's not just a contradiction, but almost a paradox that I, I'm so glad that you've put your finger on because you're right, it's it's paradoxical. On the one hand, we have we get the sense that we have access to forms of energy and power and, and technology that previously were unthought and impossible. And it's really kind of difficult to depict the scale at which that kind of industrial transformation happened. You know, you went from, for example, news and information taking six weeks to cross the Atlantic via steamship to happening almost instantaneously in the span of a few minutes with the telegraph, or you went from the horse and carriage to the train, the railroad, which went three times faster. So just the scale at which movement, communication, transportation, just the capacity to no new things to move through the world changed. It's it's really difficult to describe that in our kind of very globalized world where you can, you know, jet set around the planet. But at the same time that we we had all of these powers that seemed almost quasi-supernatural through all of these new technologies, we did seem to be kind of insignificant. And so I think science fiction, and I think you can see this really well in Star Trek, really encapsulates that because on the one hand, you know, it says, let's envision a future or an alternate reality in which humanity as we know it is not central. Maybe humanity is going extinct. Maybe it's evolved into a different form. 
maybe we've made contact with aliens and so we aren't the only ones in our solar system or our star group or our galaxy or you know like whatever astronomical scale you want to use which depends on the franchise and so obviously in star trek we have this plethora of alien races many of whom are metaphors for our past or our future or our present but at the same time the 19th century was this moment when it seemed like we could accomplish through science and technology all of these things that previously had really seemed magical. So with the photograph, for example, you could make the dead speak. You could almost bring the dead back to life, which is some of the rhetoric that they used back then. With electricity, you could have this blinding, fantastical illumination but but um, just in general, kind of that sense of we can do what was previously impossible. And, and you really get that in, in Star Trek, where there's all of these episodes where, for example, the Enterprise, it's usually the Enterprise encounters what might be a less technologically developed society. And they tend to think that, um, you know, humans from Starfleet are our gods because they can do all of these things. They can, you know, they can fly. They can literally like become invisible. They can disappear into thin air and, and reappear in other places. They can bring people back from the dead. You know, the medical technology is so good that even if if you're technically dead, they, they can still revive you and so on. And, and if you think of this in terms of kind of earlier stages of human development, those are powers that we would have ascribed to magic or divinity and never considered that human beings could be possessed of those powers. Right. And I know you have a lot to say about technobabble and Star Trek is flush with technobabble. <laughs> um, you've told me that technobabble is basically a major distinguishing feature of the science fiction genre and the inclusion of technobabble actually reflects this kind of changing worldview of replacement of magic with our own innovation, our own technology. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, so I call it technobabble, but um, in more kind of rigorous academic terms, I, I call it the performance of scientific rigor, mm. which is all over the place in, in Star Trek. They're always encountering nucleonic radiation that is, I don't know, affecting their, their nacelles or their matter-antimatter reaction, or I mean, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And none of that really means anything. I mean, not that doesn't really refer to, to anything that, that we recognize is, is sort of like realistic or meaningful. They're just throwing out a bunch of jargon. But what that does, that, again, performance of scientific rigor, is that it suggests that the story is taking place in this rational, knowable, material world where the things that are happening, even if they're things that are impossible in the world as we know it today, we're supposed to accept that those things are possible through scientific, through technological, through rational means. And for example, in, in Star Trek, you have this happening all of the time where something almost impossible seems to be happening and there's potentially a supernatural explanation for it, but then it turns out, no, there's actually a rational explanation for it, a material explanation, and that explanation might be nonsensical technobabble, but it still keeps us in a world where the laws that govern the universe are knowable, regular, material, scientific phenomena that even if we don't understand them now, we have the capacity to 
at a certain point in the future. So if you think about Star Trek V, um, which is mm. my favorite movie after Wrath of Khan, and no, that really? is not that is not up for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they 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 have this moment where um, Spock's brother steals a starship to go to the black hole at the center of the galaxy because he thinks he's going to find God, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this great line what does God need with a starship? Which, I mean, I personally think that that's the most iconic line in Star Trek, but okay. This starship, could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? It could, yes. Then I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot. Excuse me. It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. But but again, it's saying, you know, we're not going to allow a world where there's sort of magic or divinity or the incomprehensible. There's no God sitting in the black hole at the center of the galaxy. There, there is rational scientific human explanations for all of that's happening including for why the the entity in the wormhole wants a starship is comprehensible and it is theoretically subject to our control and again that i think goes back to that 19th century idea of human dominance over the natural world of of triumph over the natural world where with the sufficient technology with sufficient scientific knowledge we can do the impossible. We we can do those things which previously seemed magical or or divine. We can achieve them through our scientific knowledge, our technological supremacy, our, our accomplishments. Wow, I'll never listen to a bit of techno babble on Star Trek the same way again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, some of the techno babble is incredibly silly i will acknowledge that but the way i look at it is it's not really about the techno babble and at the end of the day it actually it really does not matter how realistic or unrealistic it is the point is that it's in its very existence it signals something about the kind of world that the story is taking place in and the kind of mindset that it wants you to take towards you know human power the human capacity for action and agency within that world Let's talk about a few well-known examples of science fiction from the 19th century. So well-known that even I know about them. (laughs) Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. How do these classic works reflect on and respond to the zeitgeist of the time? So I'll start with Frankenstein um, in part because that came first. It was published in 1818, and it's widely considered to be the first work of science fiction, at least if you look at the major works of science fiction, history, and criticism, that's generally acknowledged to be the first work. And essentially what Frankenstein is, is a secular creation story, right? And so humanity has had all sorts of creation myths dating back to, you know, thousands upon thousands of years. 
but the, the very idea of a creation myth is that, you know, there's some kind of God, there's some kind of divinity that, that creates life. But here, that creation myth is secular in the sense that Frankenstein is a human being, is able to take that divine power and accomplish that same feat of creating life through scientific means rather than supernatural ones. And in particular, if you look at the scientific references in the story, there's, for example, a reference to Erasmus Darwin, who is Charles Darwin's grandfather. There's references to Humphrey Davy, who was an incredibly well-known chemist at the time, whose work Mary Shelley read. And so there's all of this technobabble, which the word had been invented, but it's essentially technobabble, of all of these references to contemporary scientific and technological developments with electricity with the stimulation of dead bodies via electricity, which would make them move and twitch with the sciences of chemistry through which are supposed to understand Frankenstein is on the cutting edge of the sciences that are available in his day. And he uses that to create life in the same way that, um, say, in Star Trek, you know, they they use Heisenberg compensators and and. and <laughs> enormous amounts of energy from dilithium crystals to materialize people out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, we have the time machine, which I think emphasizes that other side of the paradox that I mentioned in that it really is about decentering the human. It's about a character named the time traveler who travels through time to a point in the future when humanity as we know it doesn't exist when humanity has essentially diverged into these two races the Eloi and the Morlocks one of whom lives above ground and the other of whom lives below ground and they look and act very different from how we do today and then he travels even further into the future you know quite literally millions of years into the future and he finds this moment when it's the end of life in our solar system when our sun is reaching the end of its life when the oxygen on earth has essentially been depleted and so there's this moment where he can't breathe because he as a human is no longer adapted to life on planet earth and this moment when instead of human beings you have these crab-like creatures that i think we are supposed to understand are you know our descendants quite literally millions of years in the future and so you have these moments when, again, humanity as we know it today doesn't exist, where humanity has changed and evolved into something else and exists on a planet that isn't going to be around for much longer because the sun isn't going to be around for much longer. So it's, again, this idea that humanity is not that significant in the grand scheme of things. Humanity is not central humanity is going to go extinct and the planet is going to be destroyed and life in the universe is going to carry on and there's no kind of greater meaning and no teleology to that is just what it is it's these processes of change and evolution and natural selection that happen according to random chance that that have no sort of moral valences to them no kind of metaphysical valences to them it just is and and you have to accept that it is yeah i think these two works so beautifully illustrate the two sides of that paradox that you've been talking about let's fast forward now to the 20th century i know this is not your particular area of study but star trek emerged in the middle of the 20th century and 
this is a Star Trek podcast after all. So <laughs> wait, 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 hey, hold on. This is a Star Trek podcast. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> well, consider yourself warned. We're going to talk about Star Trek now. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> using the framework with which you analyze 19th century works of science fiction, how do you see Star Trek as a response to the cultural and scientific developments of its time? So I will um, can just step back a little bit for a second and say that, you know, my degree is in literature, but what I often tell people I work on is the history of ideas. And so I see literary works and more broadly media works, you know, just our, our narratives as kind of litmus tests or seismographs of ideas at a particular moments in time. They're, they're like, I'm using all of these scientific metaphors or analogies, but they're, they're almost like fossils without the negative connotations of the term that kind of capture and then preserve through time the ideas and the frameworks and the values of a particular moment in time. And so, as I mentioned earlier, so many of the ideas and values and priorities that came about with all the transformations of the industrial age are still ones that very much inform our thinking today. And you can see that in Star Trek, you know, 100, 150 years later. So I think one of the most obvious ones, for example, is the idea of the frontier, which, you know, in, in Star Trek, they're out on, quote unquote, the frontier. They're discovering strange new worlds, spaces, the final frontier. And there are, there's obviously that kind of, unfortunate colonialist and imperialist subtext with that that arguably Star Trek has engaged with since the 1960s. But so much of that comes from 19th century fiction and 19th century European values where the idea of discovering new worlds, of mapping and dominating and conquering unknown territories, and again, territories that were inhabited by people at the time, but that were unknown to you know western europeans those priorities really inflect the literature and the thought of the time so for example the heroes of jules verne novels they're always discovering and mapping unknown worlds sometimes that's the moon sometimes that's the undersea world but sometimes that's the heart of africa you know where obviously there's people living you know wells's time traveler he's moving through the frontier of time, which he calls the fourth dimension. And so from that 19th century literature to that kind of fiction of exploration and through the pulps of the early 20th century, you get to Star Trek and the idea of these heroic characters going into the frontier. And as I'm sure many people have pointed out, the quote unquote, the frontier on Star Trek is actually inhabited because <laughs> they they keep running into people like it's it's not unknown it's just unknown to them and I think Kira in DS9 has this wonderful line where you know Bashir's like yeah I, I wanted to be a doctor out on the frontier on like the edges of, of, of civilization and she's just like yeah well your edge of civilization is my home yeah oh this will be perfect real frontier medicine frontier medicine major I had my choice of any job in the fleet. Did you? I didn't want some cushy job or a research grant. I wanted this. The farthest reaches of the galaxy. One of the most remote outposts available. This is where the adventure is. 
This is where heroes are made. Right here. In the wilderness. This wilderness is my home. Kardashians left behind a lot of injured people. Doctor, you can make yourself useful by bringing your Federation medicine to the natives. Oh, you'll find them a friendly, simple folk. I think that was like the very first episode of DS9, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I think that really is a callback to the original series in the way that it was so groundbreaking in so many ways. But of course, obviously, it was of its time in many ways. And one of the ways it was of its time is, you know, let's go forth and discover the frontier in this quasi-military vessel. And, and I love that Star Trek has since kind of become more aware of what it's doing and, and of that history. But to go beyond that, there's also, you know, as I mentioned, that that idea of humanity being godlike, of, of conquest over the natural world, of making things impossible. So, uh, for example, in Star Trek, we have godlike aliens, such as, you know, the Q, but then there's all of these instances where humans through technology are perceived to be, you know, like gods to by less advanced civilizations in you know the alpha quadrant and the delta quadrant and in all of the quadrants so I, I think i mentioned that episode or maybe i i i can't recall its name right now but that episode where there's some anthropologists who are observing a pre-warp society and then their kind of force field that keeps them invisible breaks down and so they're they're discovered by these these people and these local people who then end up thinking that these Starfleet humans are gods because, you know, they quite literally appeared out of thin air. They can disappear into thin air when they transport up to their ship. They can bring someone back from the dead with medical technology as they do when Picard gets shot in that episode uh, with an arrow. But with medical technology, they're, they're able to fix him. And so these these the civilization thinks, oh, you know, you you must be gods. And the idea is... Well, no, we are just able to do with our science and technology those things that you believe to be magic or that you believe to be divine because you have not reached that level of technological development yourselves yet. And that's just, to me, so similar to the way that in the 19th century, there was so much rhetoric and discourse about the kinds of things that technology made possible. Again, the way that, for example, contemporaries would talk about the phonograph as a way to bring back the dead, the way that the telephone was a way to, you know, talk to somebody who was not present to this disembodied presence, the way that electricity uh, was called this imponderable force or the fairy electricity, because it could do all of these things. It could illuminate homes and, and power the photograph and transform day into night and quite literally, therefore, alter the, the natural cycle of night and day and the seasons. But this fairy electricity or this imponderable force was subject to our control. It, it, it might be imponderable, but yet it is something that we can know and that we can use and that we can harness to, to do those kinds of things that previously we had only really encountered a myth and fairy tale and all of these sort of narratives about the impossible. Yeah. You know, you've taught me so much today about how the technological revolutions of the 19th century, phonograph, electricity, etc., 
really reshaped our worldview and that was expressed in the science fiction of the time. I see ourselves as being in the midst of another major revolution right now, an information revolution spurred by computer technology, the internet, artificial intelligence. This is a little bit different from the kind of revolution that happened in the industrial age, which was mainly, I think, energetic in nature. As someone who studies literature, I was wondering if you have any speculation about the kinds of media that will respond to the revolution that we're uh, going through right now, this brave new world that we're entering from an information standpoint. Have you seen literature, science fiction, maybe even Star Trek already beginning to respond to it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I will have to say that if you want to get super technical, technically, we're currently in the fourth industrial revolution. And, and oh, I've never heard that before. Tell <laughs> me more. Tell me what are what are the three other industrial revolutions? I so this again, I'm not an expert because I live in the 19th century. So once we get to like the early 20th century, that's when I become less of an expert. But so technically, the first industrial revolution was steam power, so the steam engine. Mm. And then in the second half of the 19th century, you have electricity. So many of the things that had been powered by steam first now become powered by electricity. Uh, for example, trains, you get the advent of electric railroads and electricity for illumination and so on and so forth. And then in the present, we're living through this, what, what historians of science have called the fourth industrial revolution of sort of all of these digital technologies in the digital world that, that we live in. And so there's many scholars that work on both literature and media and particularly digital media, you know, things like uh, video games and film and television and, and, and all of these other kinds of media narratives and digital narratives. And so I have to say that there's a lot of really interesting storytelling innovations that are happening due to the internet, due to digital technologies, due to all of these uh, new media I mean, at its simplest, there's people who are serializing fiction online right now the way they did in the 19th century. So the way you would have serialized fiction in the newspapers and, and every week you would buy the newspaper with the next chapter. People are doing that on their blogs right now or on various internet platforms. There's video games that are becoming a respected art form that have these amazing narratives that have amazing graphics. We're exploring all of these immersive and 3D technologies, including kind of early holograph technologies or all of these kind of visors that you could put on that, that immerse you in, in this almost three-dimensional world that is somewhat reminiscent of the holodeck. So I think that there's so many really exciting things happening, but I think that the one thing that really won't change is that there has to be narrative present and that there have to be characters that we we can in some way relate to. And obviously those don't have to be human characters because as we know from Star Trek, we can connect to, to characters who aren't human, but who in many ways are still created through a human lens and anthropomorphized because that's how we see the world. So I think no matter what happens with all of these cool, new, immersive, three-dimensional technologies. We're still just going to tell stories about people that are in some way like ourselves and through which we can make sense of the world and through which we can make sense of the unknown. Yeah, that's a really great point. And speaking of 3D technologies, you know, this 
well, I don't know what they call it, like the VR wall or something that they've been mm-hmm. filming the latest Star Trek series in Discovery and Strange New Worlds and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, they- yeah. I think they talked about that at the Strange New Worlds panel, actually, where they built the very immersive set. And I think the way Star Trek usually is filmed is, you know, when the captain says on screen and whatever is displayed on screen, it's actually a blank screen when they're filming it. And then they, they put it in later digitally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what they said at the panel is it's fully interactive. Like when they're filming things actually pop up on the screen, all of the displays are actually responsive. So it kind of feels like the actors are in this three dimensional environment, which you know, I'm not an actor, but I'm really fascinated by how that might actually change the experience of being an actor and imagining yourself in this world and playing off of the other actors in the scene and responding to your environment. Right. I've heard a lot of them say that it's easier because they don't have to imagine something. But I also wonder from an actor's perspective, if you would be insulted maybe by this technology like oh you don't think i can imagine that planet or that weird alien over there and respond to a blank green screen like come on i don't know i i have no idea i'm not an actor either (laughs) Uh, yeah me me neither i can't act to save my life but but i hear that a lot of actors are not thrilled about having to like play off of a tennis ball on a stick or whatever it is they have to do so i think i think many of them are thrilled yeah yeah that's probably true as a scientist um, who has been inspired by science fiction, I'm well aware that there's a feedback loop between science and science fiction. I mean, I, I feel it in my own life. Okay, and and so you've mentioned that to me before, and I know you're the one asking the questions here, but I, I am really curious to hear a little bit more about that and how science fiction has inspired you. Oh, well, I mean, Star Trek, I grew up watching Star Trek from like kindergarten onwards, and so I... I don't know the counterfactual. I don't know what my life would have been like if I had never discovered Star Trek and um, if I hadn't grown up a big space nerd. But I suspect it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. And so I feel like by being such a big fan of Star Trek and other science fiction, that has propelled me into the kind of career that I've had as a space scientist. And as a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist, my job is literally to try to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life. And I feel like I've molded my career to do essentially what my heroes from my childhood did on screen in Star Trek. That is so cool. I mean, yeah. my my dream, I think, when I was a teenager was that I wanted to be a musketeer in the 17th century. So clearly, <laughs> clearly, I did not do that like you did. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, all we need to do is invent a time machine and then you can <laughs> be a musketeer. Well, and then and then we can think about some temporal prime directives and butterfly effects. But I True. digress. Yeah. <laughs> So basically, my question that I wanted to ask you was talking to you, I now wonder if this feedback loop, which I experienced on a, you know, very individual, personal level, actually runs a lot deeper and wider than I previously thought that the science that is discovered by society as a whole influences the stories that are created, the narratives that we generate, which then display or reflect in some way the collective world's view, the knowledge at the time, which then feeds back onto scientists. Is, is that true? Do you think that through our stories, science fiction molds what we think we know, and then that transforms somehow or trickles down into what we actually do 
-hmm. know through science, know again in quotes? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think the influence is definitely there. Um, but I do think the influence is sometimes a little more complicated than we like to think of it. So often we say, you know, science fiction inspired this particular invention. For example, we often say that the Star Trek communicator inspired the flip phone. Or for example, Victor Sikorsky, who invented the helicopter, was inspired by reading Jules Verne, who advocated for heavier-than-air flight. And, and we like to draw those connections of this author predicted or this author invented this idea that scientists then realized. And, and yes, often that does happen. Um, but I do also think that that feedback loop, there, there's so much more there. There's firstly the fact that for new technology to be integrated into our society, for there to be uptake of that technology, you need more than just to invent it. You also need to convince the public to use it because as human beings, we don't like the unknown. We, we don't like the unfamiliar. You know, Think about how scared we are, for example, of our personal assistance or our AI you know, becoming sentient and taking over and killing us or rising up or whatever. And, to be clear, I don't think that's going to happen, but but that's like a cultural thing that we've gotten from our narratives. And so oftentimes when we have new technologies, in order to get people to buy them and to use them, we have to familiarize them. We have to convince the public that they're viable, that they're safe, that they're useful in order for, for people to purchase them and to use them. And so science fiction often has this effect of familiarized in new technologies and seeing how it might be safely and, and efficiently integrated into our lives in order to encourage people to fund it, to pursue it, to use it. And so, for example, there's this wonderful scholar named David Kirby who wrote this book called Lab Coats in Hollywood, and he talks about something he terms diegetic prototypes, which essentially has to do with the way that various scientists and engineers and inventors will develop a concept for technology, so a prototype, and then they will have that technology integrated into a fictional narrative, and then we'll use that fictional narrative to go and get research funding and, and to say, well, look at how this might work, like, you know, look at this narrative where these characters are using it, that demonstrates its viability its ability to, to be used safely by human beings in, in a normal world. And then that way they procure funding and actually create the object, the thing. And one of the most famous examples of this is the gesture interface technology in Minority Report. So if you've ever seen the movie, there's this kind of, the characters can gesture with their hands and it will move things on this virtual computer screen and so on and so forth. That was something that was actually developed by an engineer who placed the idea of that into the movie and then used the movie to start a company and get funding and to develop that actual technology. And so that, that happens really often. That happens, for example, with the moon landing and the moon missions, where it was really important to have popular support for the moon missions because NASA is publicly funded. So in order for Congress to, you know, vote to continue funding the moon missions, you have to have public support. And so NASA would engage in this huge PR campaign to sort of make the idea of a moon mission seem realistic and, and viable and the stuff of dreams, but also something that could be accomplished. 
So again, there, there's this wonderful book called Marketing the Moon about all the way that NASA sort of told all of these narratives and created all of these immersive visions of here is our spacefaring future in order to acquire popular support for the moon missions and to make them possible. This has been just such a fascinating conversation with you. We're running out of time, but I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on the premiere of Star Trek Strange New World, since I know you were so looking forward to that series and the first episode has finally aired. I I was so looking forward to it and I was so jealous of my friends that got to attend the premiere about a week early. I mean, I'm really excited to see where it goes. I think I think it's, you know, a, a decent first episode. You can see a lot of callbacks to kind of the style of old Trek in terms of not only its episodic nature, but also its optimism, the way that, you know, they end up on this alien planet where they mess things up and they have to fix them. And they do manage to fix them. And they manage to fix them because... Pike gives a very eloquent speech and that convinces these aliens to stop blowing each other up essentially and I think there was a response to that that you know it's unrealistic and it's like well Kirk fixing everything with a big you know pathos fueled speech and TOS was also unrealistic but that was the heart of the show that was this optimism that Roddenberry tried so hard to create at this very fraught moment in history when TOS was being filmed and, and on the air. And, and I think that, you know, this episode, even though it has its kind of logistical flaws and, and whatnot, and you can nitpick, but I can see what they're trying to do. I can see what part of the spirit of TOS they're trying to capture. And, and based on that first episode, it seems that they're succeeding. Yeah, it felt very old school classic Trek to me. And mm-hmm. I loved it. I, I really did. Uh, I thought Pike's speech was very moving. It reduced me to tears, especially when- And Anson were... Mount has a way of doing that. He's been just a <laughs> phenomenal Pike, I think. He's so great. And um, the fact that they used some like January 6th footage in that was like, it hit so hard that like, wow, you know, we are in this perilous moment just as this uh, other planet was and made me, you know, really hope that- uh, that we can pull it together. I hope it doesn't take literally a spaceship dropping in on us <laughs> and an alien pike beaming down to, you know, smack some sense into our world leaders for it to happen. But uh, but uh, yeah, I think the message was very pertinent. Absolutely. Yeah. And one, one of the other, you know, responses I've heard is including that footage was a little too on the nose or, or, you know, a little too close to him. And, and I, you know, have you seen Star Trek? Like, do, <laughs> do we not remember all of the episodes that were just allegories for the Vietnam war, but with aliens? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are now out of time. And my last question for you is obviously listeners are going to want to Go out, seek out, digest more of your amazing material because you're doing such cool things. Thank you. Where can people follow you on the internet? So I'm in the process of creating a website where people can find all of the 
fun things I do. But for the moment, I think Twitter is probably the best place to find me. It's Anna Klimchi. And I think we can put that in the episode notes. And that's where usually I post about anything I've published, any classes I'm teaching. I, I teach a number of virtual classes that anybody can sign up for. You don't have to be you know, enrolled at UChicago. They're accessible to anyone. And I do various you know, virtual appearances, talks. One of the things that is really important to me is kind of bringing my knowledge, bringing my expertise beyond the walls of the academy to people via, you know, things like this, podcasts, presentations, talks of various sorts. So whenever I have something lined up, I always tweet about it and I encourage people to spread the word. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you for bringing your knowledge to me and to our listeners today. This has been so much fun. And I think we'll probably be hearing from you again, not too, uh, not too long from now on Strange New Worlds. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. That was Dr. Anastasia Klimchinskaya on the emergence of science fiction and how Star Trek fits into her scholarly framework. Special thanks to Dr. Ingrid Okert, a former podcast guest of ours and a mutual friend of myself and Anastasia, for facilitating our introduction. I loved learning from Anastasia, and one of the things that stuck out to me from this conversation was learning the actual academic term for technobabble. It's the performance of scientific rigor. As you'll recall from our conversation, technobabble is usually completely meaningless, but it serves an important purpose in science fiction to lend a sense of realism to the show or novel. Sure, you don't know what those words Jadzia Dax is saying right now mean, but you're made to believe that she knows what they mean and that they make total logical sense to her. And you know, the more I reflect on it, the more I love this term, performance of scientific rigor, because I now see myself doing this all the time. I probably shouldn't admit this, but when I give a scientific talk, especially to an audience of experts, I am very acutely aware of the fact that I don't fully understand every single word of what I'm saying. It's true, I don't actually know the deep theoretical or empirical foundations of every single word that I say. But I say them anyway because I know that they're the right words to say because, as I've just learned, I want to perform scientific rigor. <laughs> And I know that if I say certain jargony words, even if I don't fully understand them, it will sound like I know what I'm talking about. And this is just so fascinating to me that even in real world science, in our talks and lectures, we employ the practice of technobabble. With the major difference that, of course, somebody out there in the audience does actually know what that word means, because they probably invented that word and wrote a dozen scientific papers about it. So I have to be really careful to use it correctly, even though it's still kind of a hollow shell to me. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, as I keep pondering this revelation that Anastasia precipitated in my mind, let me wish you all good health and endless curiosity. Until next time, see you out there.
All right, I'll do the little Star Trek thingy and then I will. Hang on, hang on. I could I could tape my fingers together. So give me, give me one. Second. Oh my goodness, you're literally taping your fingers. I, I am literally you could you could like put that in the caption that I had to okay. There we go. <laughs> All right. One, two, three. Fantastic. I could I could untape these now. <laughs> Listen, for Zachary Quinto, they had to glue his fingers together. I don't know if you know this. No way, I did not. Well, they, they he can't do it either, so they had to glue his fingers together. Wow. So, <laughs> well, you're in good company then of people Clearly. who, uh, yeah, who cannot do the Vulcan assistance. salute. Yeah. yeah.